Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up uh, to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. I have been preaching a new series of messages on the topic of love. And so far we've looked at some amazing uh, verses on love. I've just been cherry picking what I think is some of the best of the best in scripture on the topic. We've, we've looked at Mark 12, 30 and 31 where it tells us to love God and to love our neighbor. We looked at John 13, 34 and 35 where it says to love one another as he's loved us. We looked at Ephesians 3, 16 to 19, where we're exhorted to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that love that surpasses knowledge. And we looked at Romans 8, where, where Paul writes that he's convinced that nothing will ever be able to separate us uh, from the love of God. And then last week, we, we began taking a look at 1 Corinthians 13, that, that wonderful chapter, that, you know, the, maybe the most expansive definition on love that we have in Scripture. And in the very beginning of it, we looked at the first three verses where Paul tells us that we can operate in all these different gifts of the Spirit. We can operate in signs and wonders, but if we have not love, that we're nothing. And so what I'd like to do today is pick up uh, from that point on 1 Corinthians 13, look at verses 4 through 8, and, um, and so let's do that. If you have Bibles uh, with you, you can follow along as I begin reading at verse 4. This is what Paul writes. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And verse 8 begins with these words, love never fails. So Father, we thank you for your word, for the truth that's in your word, for the power that's in your word. Lord, I pray that your word would have its full impact on us. Lord, let this be the result. Make us to be more like Jesus. Amen? So here we have the Apostle Paul's great description of love. And he begins by listing two things that love is. He says that love is patient and that love is kind. Some translations put it this way. Love suffers long and love is kind. So from the beginning we can see that love, from Paul's perspective, that love is described by action words. He's using verbs here. Not ethereal concepts, Paul's not writing about the way that love feels. He's writing about how love can be seen in action. How love, like faith, is demonstrated in our actions. You know, we've heard the express, expression, talk is cheap, right? It's easy to say the words. You know, it's the actions that prove it out. People can say they love you and then not treat you in a loving way. Anybody ever experienced that? People could say, I got your back, and then their actions prove that they don't have your back. Right? People could say with words, I'm your friend, and then be very unfriendly in their actions. Paul's saying, hey, 
when I'm describing love, I'm using verbs. I'm using action terms here. He says love is patient, or as some translations say, love, is, love suffers long. Love will endure for a very long time. It's, it's at the very heart of God toward you and I. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says it this way. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God suffers long. God, God is patient with you and I. Aren't you glad you've come to a place where you have relationship with you, that somewhere along the journey, as you were running from him, as you were resisting him, that he didn't give up on you. He pursued you and pursued you and pursued you, just like he did me. So what does that mean for us? God's patient with me. And if he's patient with me, then I have resources that I can draw upon to extend patience to other people, even when they annoy me, <laughs> even when they hurt me. Patience means long-suffering. I remember John Wimber years ago teaching, and he talks about long-suffering as it's listed here in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, I looked up long-suffering. You know what it means? He says, it means to suffer a long time. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so concerning this word long-suffering or patience, the ancient archbishop of uh, Constantinople, John Chrysostom, Chrysostom, oh, anyway, Said, said, yeah, John said, this is the word used of man. This is the word used of a man who is wronged and who easily has the power to avenge himself, but will not do it out of mercy, mercy and patience. That's what the word long-suffering means here. That's what the word patience. He's got the power. He's got the resources. He's got the capability to exact revenge or his, their own sense of justice but makes the choice, out of love, makes the choice not to take the action that they're empowered to do simply for the sake of love. I think, again, this is a wonderful description of God. He's all-powerful. I mean, think about it. There's got to be at least a dozen times yesterday where if I got justice instead of mercy, a lightning bolt would have come from heaven and I'd have been an ink spot on the ground, right? God had the power to do that. But out of his extravagant love for me, he chose not to. Can you see, can you see how this, this definition of love, it's both practical and it's highly relational. Love is relational. It's really hard to come up with any other way of looking at love outside a relationship. The second thing you said that love is, that love is kind. When we have God's love, when we as people show God's love, it can often be seen in simple acts of kindness. It doesn't have to be grand, dramatic things. It can be very simple, very practical things. Matter of fact, I would say to you today, never underestimate the power and the impact and the effectiveness of a small, simple act of kindness. A kind word or a kind deed at the right time, it can absolutely alter the course of someone's life. I remember a friend telling me a story years ago. He, he was a believer, and he was learning how to hear God. And his wife was pregnant with their first child, and, and he really felt like he had this strong promise from God that when his daughter was born, that she would be fine, that everything would be fine. And his daughter's born, and she has trouble with both of her legs. Uh, they had to be broken and reset so that the legs would 
would be in the right position and grow normally. It was an absolute crisis of faith for him. He said it brought him to the brink where he, he was honestly wrestling with whether or not I'm still going to follow that, this Jesus. Anybody else ever been there? I've been there. I've had my heart so broken. I've been so devastated that I, I can remember one day in particular where I took the whole day. I honestly waited. I was so upset because God didn't meet my expectations that I was trying to decide, am I going to follow him? We're not going to follow him. And I wasn't going to make some off-the-hip, you know, flipping kind of response. I was really going to think this out. And about 12 hours later, I realized I'd already made the decision to follow Jesus. I was still going to do it. Well, my friend is at that very point. He's trying to decide, can I trust this God? Do I still want to follow him? And uh, he's, he, this is what he tells me, that he's at a Chinese restaurant. He, he'd ordered some takeout food for the family and... Uh, and there was a little bench there. It was also a restaurant. And so he was just sitting on the bench. And as customers would come in to be seated at the restaurant, they had to walk right by where the takeout customers would sit on this little side bench and wait for their food to be ready. And he said he's sitting there, and this one gentleman comes in. There's, a, there's a, I think, a group of four of them. And they're, they're on the way walking to their table to sit down and have a meal. And the guy walks past him, goes about three more steps. He stops. He pauses. He turns around and comes back to my friend and says, look, you don't know me, but I just heard God tell me to tell you everything's going to be okay. And it, it wasn't life-changing, right? It didn't, you know, it wasn't, an angel didn't appear, a golden fax didn't fall from heaven, there wasn't lights in the sky. It was a kind word of encouragement from a stranger at the right moment, and it altered the course of his life. It was those kind words that made him say yes. I'll continue to trust God. As it turned out, his daughter did have surgery. Her legs were fine. Everything was fine. There was a step in the middle, but everything was fine. A kind word. Kindness is powerful. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary describes kindness as extending good to others. I think that's a pretty real definition. Matthew Henry describes kindness as benign, bountiful, courteous, and obliging. Chuck Smith in his commentary, had something interesting to say about kindness I'd like to share with you. This is what he says about long-suffering and kindness. He says, the characteristic of love, the agape, is that it's long-suffering, but that it's also kind. That it is at the end of that period of long-suffering. Its response at that time is one of kindness. Now, I've heard people, and myself say, I've taken enough. I've taken enough of that, and now I'm going to do something about it. And it's usually in a powerful, vengeful way. Not so kind. I've taken and taken and taken, and I've had it. Chuck Smith says, that isn't agape. He says, the agape is that it has taken and taken and taken, and its, and it's response is this. Oh, that poor soul. Please help him. He says, this is the the kindness of God, that it's kind after long suffering. That's where it's challenging to be kind, right? You suffer a long time, you endure, you put up with people's stuff for a long time, and then you're kind to them anyway. That's what this is. That's what this kindness referred to here is. Just as in the text itself, kindness that follows after long suffering. Being kind after you've been patient. Not so easy, right? 
Then Paul goes on to describe eight things that love is not. It says it does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Can you see that this is an entirely different standard from the way our world operates? This is not how it operates in the workplace, is it? This is not how it operates in government. This is not how it operates in the world. These are the, these are the standards of an entirely different kingdom, of a heavenly kingdom. Truly, God's ways are not our ways. They're much higher than our ways. So let's take a look at these one at a time. Love does not envy. Envy is most likely, probably, one of the least productive and most damaging of all emotions. It accomplishes nothing except to hurt. Here's another way to look at it. Love does not resent it when someone else is promoted or blessed. That's a good way of looking at, at this, this portion of text here. Love does not resent it when somebody else is promoted or when somebody else is blessed. We have a practice in the Zawacki household between Nadine and I and our, our daughter Lisa, our son Tom. We've, we have, with purpose and intention, we've made it our practice to rejoice with those who rejoice. When somebody comes to us with good news, they've gotten a promotion, they bought a new car, something positive has happened to them, they've gotten a raise on the job, um, we, and it really has been focused intention that we choose to celebrate with them because they, people want to be celebrated with at those times. <laughs> to wholeheartedly rejoice with those who rejoice. Have you ever shared good news with somebody only to have them rain a pity party on your parade? You know, that's terrible, right? Isn't that, I hate that thing. It's like, oh, I had this really good thing happen. And then like you share it with them and their response is one of envy, and it's like, I almost feel guilty that a good thing happened to me. I almost feel like there's shame somehow in that a good thing happened. We made a point in our family a long time ago that we wouldn't do that, and we've instilled that value into our children. We've had conversations with them, even recently, where some good things have happened and how they've responded with um, rejoicing, with celebrating somebody else's good fortune, and how there's been a few occasions where some good things happened with Lisa, some good things happened with Tom, and their friend and their friends responded with envy. And they're like, they're like, Dad, why, why do people have to do that? Well, it's envy. That's what it is. Basically, they resent that they didn't get what you did. The Amplified Bible says it this way: Love is never envious, nor boils over with jealousy. And envy is no small thing. Murder, envy rather, murdered Abel. Check out Genesis chapter 4. It was envy that enslaved Joseph. Read Genesis 37. And scripture says it was envy that put Jesus on the cross. Matthew 27, 18 says, For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. So envy's no small thing. It's, it's pretty potent and it's pretty, pretty deadly. Moving on, scripture says that love does not boast. The King James Version says it this way, love does not parade itself. Strong's Concordance defines boasting this way, a self-display, employing rhetorical embellishments in extolling one's self excessively. 
a self-display employing rhetorical embellishments and extolling one's self-excessiveness. That's a lot of words to describe boasting, right? <laughs> Let me say it this way. Love is anonymous. That would be a good way to put it. Love's anonymous. Love doesn't want the limelight. It's happy to be behind the curtain or in the back of the room. It doesn't need the limelight or attention. You know what it makes me think of? Usually we see it around the holidays, right? There's some politician who's at a soup kitchen you know, with a photo op, and he's pouring the soup in the bowl, right? That's not love. That's a photo op, man. There's nothing selfless about that at all. Love isn't a photo op. David Roost, the new national director for Vineyard Canada, of which we're a part, he says it this way. He says, the poor are not a photo op, the rich are not to be taken advantage of, and the famous are not to be exploited. I'm thinking, yeah, that's absolutely right. Love is not a photo op. Love doesn't take advantage of people. Love doesn't exploit others. Love loves because it loves to love. <laughs> that's why love does it. Not because of the accolades that it somehow can get off of a loving action. Love doesn't love and then announce it to everyone within earshot just how loving they are. If we're honest, people who do that, that's really just pride looking for attention dressed up in a love costume. That's not really love. I like the way the, I like the, way the message puts it. Pretty simple. It says, love does not strut. Isn't that good? Love doesn't strut. Paul goes on to say that love is not proud. The Greek word used here for proud literally means to puff up. Like, a, like blowing up a balloon. Or more accurately, like blowing up a hot air balloon. It's someone with a big head. Love doesn't get a big head. Because love is other focused. Love is not puffed up. It's not arrogant. It's not proud. Love is not self-focused. And hey, look, we're all susceptible to pride, all of us. And matter of fact, I think you could probably take most sins, and if you boil them down to the least common denominator, it probably looks a whole lot like pride. One way, shape, form, or another. But of all different kinds of pride, my humble opinion Probably spiritual pride is the worst of the worst. Be it not denominational pride, biblical knowledge pride, spiritual experience pride, it just stinks, man. It just Pride just stinks no matter what version or variety it comes in. It's just so out of place, especially in Christianity. It's like a big old muddy boot in the middle of a beautifully set dining room table for the holidays. It just doesn't fit anybody with eyes to seek and say, that big old muddy boot doesn't belong in the middle of that beautiful table setting. I like this next one. It says, love does not dishonor others. So what does it mean to honor somebody? To honor another means to treat them respectfully. It means not to be rude, not to be disrespectful. Love treats people with respect whether they deserve it or not. It's not like, oh, are they worthy of respect? That's not love. Love isn't about being worthy. It's the unworthy <laughs> that we honor that we choose not to dishonor. The King James Version says it this way, love does not behave rudely. Think of the golden rule. You treat others the way you'd like them to treat you. You don't say or do things about 
you know, say or do things about others that you wouldn't want said about you or done to you. That's only fair. Here's an example that came to mind for me. You ever been, you know, traveling, you're flying, and your flight gets canceled or your flight gets delayed? Frustrating, right? I mean, one of the more frustrating things, especially when you're there at the gate and you're, you're waiting for boarding, and then suddenly the sign comes up that your flight's canceled. Then there's a med dash to the, to the counter to make sure you can get the first available seat on the next available flight. I think, I think about the poor gal on the other side of the counter. She's having a bad day, right? She got a whole plane full of angry people coming up to her, and she's... I mean, she just came to work today to do her job. She didn't know there was going to be mechanical problems or there was going to be a weather issue or the pilot got sick or whatever. She had no idea. She's just there doing her job, but she's got a long line of angry people. I think that might be a situation where a good practical application of love is not dishonoring to others. Now, I've been in that situation, and I know how frustrating it can be, but I'll tell you what. Here's a little tip for anybody who travels a lot. If you're nice to that gal, if you treat her with kindness, especially when everybody around her is yelling at her and telling her things about her and her mother and her grandmother, if you're nice to her in that moment, she's, she's going to be nice to you. She's going to recognize someone who's choosing, who's refusing to dishonor her in that moment, and you, you might get a benefit for it. Just being nice. So let's say it in the positive Love is honoring. Love honors. Love, love looks for gold and not for dirt. Love looks for gold and not for dirt. If you're mining for gold, you've got you to gotta work your way through a whole lot of dirt just to find them little nuggets, right? Honoring people is looking for the gold and not focusing on the dirt. Love is grace-driven. Excuse me, honor is grace-driven and not law-driven. Honor addresses faults gently and with encouragement, and it never gossips. Gossip is a, is a highly dishonoring practice. It's not loving. Love celebrates, or honor celebrates, people for who they are. It doesn't judge people for who they are not. Honor heals wounds. It doesn't inflict wounds. Moving, moving right along. Love is not self-seeking. It doesn't seek its own. It's not all about me, me, me. Because love truly, it truly is other-focused. Paul com communicates it this way in, in a couple of verses. Let me read them to you. Romans 12, 9. It says, love, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. That's love in the form that's not self-seeking. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 puts it this way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, honor others above yourself. Not looking for your own interest but each of you to the interest of others. Love is selfless. The Amplified Bible describes love is not self-seeking this way. Love, God's love in us, 
does not insist on its own rights or its own way, for it's not self-seeking. I can tell you, as someone who was born in the States, this whole concept of my rights, boy, it's powerfully ingrained in us. I have a right to fill in the gap. There are times where love has to trump that sense of entitlement, that sense of I have a right to. Love needs to be greater. Moving on. Love is not easily angered. King James Version says it's not provoked. The Amplified says it's not touchy or fretful or resentful. And I like the way the message puts it. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Hey, we all get angry from time to time, especially when we're irritated or when we're tired or when people are just being plain annoying and get angry. I'm glad that the New International Version sticks in there the word easily. Love isn't easily angered. Think about it this way. Have you ever had to walk on eggshells because there's somebody angry in the house? You know what that's like? It's like, oh, just so afraid that I'm going to step across the line or say the wrong thing or unknowingly do something and then, oh, there's going to be this eruption. That's the easily angered, that, that atmosphere that's created with that person. I think that's the kind of anger that's being referred to here. It's a short fuse kind of anger, that, a kind of anger that's ready to blow at any moment. Another way to say it could be this. It takes a lot. It takes a great deal. It takes a whole lot to make love angry. Being easily angered is not loving. I love this next one. Love keeps no record of wrongs. This isn't highlighted in your Bible. It needs to be. Literally, it means this. Love does not store up the memory of any wrong it has received. Love does not store up the memory of any, of any wrong it has received. Love will put away the hurt of the past instead of clinging to it. The message puts it this way. Love doesn't keep score of the sin of others. It doesn't keep score. Huh. Love doesn't replay, replay the, the tape in our heads over and over and over and over again. Even more than that, even more than that, love has no means of making the recording. It keeps no record. I'm trying to think of a practical way to apply this. It's like using your credit card and never getting the bill. <laughs> Can you relate to that at this time of year? Love keeps no record of wrong. It's that good. It's, this is profoundly significant, and you'll see it as I get to the end of the message. Paul said, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. And evil here means injustice or unrighteousness. More specifically, it means an unjust judge, the person who's supposed to be in that position of, of ensuring justice, and they've, and they've been bribed, they've, they've, been, they've been bought, they've compromised. Instead of doing the, the work of justice, because they have the position and the power to execute justice, they execute injustice. Love does not celebrate injustice, but it celebrates when things are done truthfully. Love wants the truest, and it wants the best for others. And even more than that, it refuses to taint 
or color things against people in order for it to be in, in your own favor. It won't, it won't taint the story. It won't spin so that you look good and they look worse than they really are. That's not, that would be an injustice. That's not what love does. Love rejoices in the truth, in the whole truth. And this is a truth that's without pretense, without bias, without falsehood or deceit. And so if, if you're like me, as I've gone through this list, it's like I started up here and I feel like, oh, 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 oh. And then I get, to, I get to verse 7. And this is what Paul writes. He says, concerning love, he says, it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes. It always perseveres. And I'm like, I'm done. I can't. What do you mean, always? Are you kidding me? Paul, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Spurgeon calls these four, protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres as, as the, the four virtues, these four virtues as love's four sweet companions. And that's fine, except that he precedes each of these with an extremely powerful word. The word always, always is a powerful word. Like never, it's a word that's, that really justifiably should only be reserved for God. Always and never are terms that can only apply to God. And so I thought, let me look at other translations. I'll find a loophole here. King James Version uses the term all things, perseveres all things. I'm thinking, that ain't any better than always. That's about just as bad as always. So I thought I'll find some wiggle room in the Amplified. And it says, love bears up under anything and everything that comes. Is ever ready to believe the best of every person. It hopes are fadeless under all circumstances. And it endures everything without weakening. I'm not feeling any better. (laughs) Not, Not getting any easier. All means all. Always means always. All things encompasses everything. Now look. We can bear up on the some things, and we can believe the best of some people some of the time, and we can hope, but fadeless under all circumstances, seriously? (laughs) We passed beyond the realm of human discipline or self-improvement. Paul's gone too far. With some of the others I can see in my life, there's obvious room for improvement. I can do better with some focused determination. That's all I really need. But now he's brought it to this lofty height that I simply am incapable, even in the best of my best days of attaining. How about you? This is a God thing. I ain't got it in and of myself. This is an expression of love that requires the divine. And I'll get back to that in a moment. So let's take a look at these four things briefly. Love always protects. The word for protection here can just as easily be translated as covers. And it reminds me of 1 Peter 4, 8, where it says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Not cover up as in deception or scandal, but cover over like a a bandage or a dressing on a wound. Love doesn't burn up phone lines and Facebook and covering other people. Instead, it covers them. It covers the wound. It covers where there's, where there's hurt, where there's brokenness, where there's frailty, where there's weakness, where there's vulnerability. Love covers always, always. Love always trusts. 
And, you know, we spent a long time when we were going through the Gospel of John, at least the first ten chapters of it, and I told you that any time you see the word believe or belief or faith uh, in the Gospel, it comes from the same Greek root word pistis, which means trust. Here in the NIV, it takes that very same root word and it defines it as trust. Love always pistis. Love always trusts. Love is intentionally relational. Love chooses to believe the best of others, not jumping easily to the worst. In agape love, and that's the word used here, it's agape. In agape love, trust is never violated. Not in agape love. Love is never sacrificed on the altar of rightness or opinion. Relationship is always persevered, always. Given the choice, and we will, we will constantly be faced with the choice. Love will repeatedly choose relationship, relationship, relationship. Why? Love always trusts. Trust, the concept of trust only exists in the realm of relationship. If there's no relationship, then there's, there's no basis for that word. It's a God word. It comes from the sense of the, of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Spirit trust one another in perfect love. Love always trusts. This, this concept comes from that place. It's powerful. Love always trusts. Relationship is always persevered. And again, this is a divine trait. Love always hopes. Love has confidence in your future. Love has confidence in the other person's future. Love is not pessimistic. Love is glass half full, not glass half empty. It looks for the best. It doesn't look back. When disappointed, love doesn't say, it'll always be like this. Things will never get better. Ah, they'll only get worse. No, that's, that's not hope. That's hopelessness. Love always hopes. And love always perseveres. Now, most of us can bear up under all things and believe all things and hope all things for a little while, maybe. But the greatness of agape love is that it keeps on bearing. It keeps on believing. It keeps on hoping. It doesn't ever give up. It never gives up. The King James Version translates verse 7 this way. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And some commentators think that there's a process here, that, that first we face darkness with patience, for love bears all things. And if that isn't enough, then we battle darkness with faith, because love believes all things. And if that's not enough, then we overcome a third time by hope, for love hopes all things, and finally we finish the battle with perseverance, for love endures all things. And if that's not yet enough for you, there's the beginning of verse 8. Love never fails. Love never fails. The beginning of verse 8 is it's yet another profound statement. Again, utilizing a term that, that needs to be reserved for and applied only to God. The term never, love, never fails. It never fails. Now, if you're like me, I'm having a hard time reconciling this because I look back over Tom Zawacki's life and I could say, failed here, failed here, failed here, failed here. What's up? 
Love never fails. Amplified puts it this way. Love never fails. It never fades out or becomes obsolete or comes to an end. The message says love never dies. Here's the interesting thing about love. A good friend of mine, associate pastor of the church that we had back in Washington, took over the church when when we moved out. Dwayne Coffin. This is what he says about love. He says, love always looks like it's losing until it's not. Love always looks like it's losing until it's not. What a perfect, perfect description of Calvary on the cross. Man, it sure looked like love was losing on the cross, didn't it? Even as it was winning its most astounding victory, love looked like it was losing. You know what? Love is our secret weapon. It's the most powerful weapon in our arsenal. Because no matter what we're facing, no matter what, it never fails. It never, ever fails. So what's our Monday morning takeaway from this? Well, I think there are two ways of looking at these verses. One is that we can use them and measure ourselves against them. And so I could read it this way. I can insert my name. I can take out the word love. I can put the name in Tom. I say, Tom is patient. Hmm. Tom is kind. Tom does not envy. Tom does not boast. Nadine should be snickering by this point, right? (laughs) Tom is not proud. Tom does not dishonor others. Tom is not (laughs) self-seeking. Tom is not easily angered. I mean, no matter how good I feel about myself at the beginning of the list, the further on I go down, the less happy I am. Tom is not easily angered. Tom keeps no record of wrongs. Tom does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. All right, I feel feel a little bit better with that one. But then here comes the hard one. Tom always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Tom always perseveres. (laughs) Tom never fails. Oh, man. Not looking so good right now. I mean, even if I grade myself on a curve, I'm still not looking so good. There's no hope. There's no encouragement in this approach to looking at this text. None. I find if I look at it from this perspective, the only thing I walk away with is guilt and shame. The only thing I walk away with is, dude, you got to try harder. And I tell you what, I look at this list, I look at Paul's description of love, and I could try my hardest and best for the rest of my life. I'm not going to be able to do this. I just, at 54, as long as I've been on this journey, I am not going to be able to do that. So a Monday morning takeaway, I think, is this. There's another way of looking at this verse. And it changes everything. Instead of using it to measure ourselves, what if we looked at it as a description of God? That God is patient. Oh, I feel good about that. That God is kind. I feel really good about that. That God does not envy. He rejoices in the things I rejoice in. He celebrates with me. That God does not boast. That he is not proud. That God does not dishonor others. This will change your theology. God is not self-seeking. Think about that. 
With God, it's not all about him, him, him. From his perspective, it's all about you, you, you. This will change some of our theology too. God is not easily angered. That's a game changer. If you get nothing else today, get that one. He, God, our God is not easily angered. How can I put God's name in here? Because 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. That's, that's how I can do this. Rightly so. I'm not twisting scripture. God is love. And if that's so, then this is describing love. God is not easily angered. And I love this one. This is why I said you need to have this highlighted. God keeps no record of wrongs. God keeps no record of wrongs. God keeps no record of wrong. He don't have a ledger book. He doesn't have a videotape somewhere of everything you've done wrong. The blood of Jesus, the work done on Calvary, settled that issue. That's good news. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. God, get this. Suddenly, verse 7 is exciting. It's not devastating to me anymore. God always protects. God always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. God never fails. Guys, this is good news today. There's a good way that we can look at this. We don't have to walk out of here with guilt and shame saying we don't measure up. Of course we don't measure up. That's why we need a Savior. And Jesus does the job so well. He's really good at it. There's freedom. Instead of guilt and shame because we don't measure up, I have hope that I have an amazing Heavenly Father who loves me with this lavish and extravagant love. Putting our names in the text is foolishness because it's an impossible standard. Anytime the words always and never are used, of course it's an impossible standard. We'll never measure up to that standard this side of heaven. But putting God's name in there, it's entirely appropriate. It's legitimate. It's accurate. When I read that God is this kind of love from that perspective, then suddenly 1 John 3, 1, which I spent so many weeks preaching on when I first got here, makes perfect sense. Where it says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You want to know what the great and lavish part are? Read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8, and it defines for you. The greatness of God's love, the lavishness, the extravagance of his love toward you. So when we apply these verses to God and not to us, the terms great and lavish suddenly make all kinds of sense. So this is good news. This is extraordinary good news for you today. Agape love is divine love, it, divine love. It requires God. It's impossible without him. For man, this is impossible. For God, this is absolutely possible. We can't do this, but with him, in Christ Jesus, I can do all things. I can love because he's first loved me. He puts this agape love in us, and that's how it can flow out of us. If you want to see God differently today, and, oh, God, I want you to see God differently today. And put God's name in there. 
I want to release you from the guilt and the shame of feeling like you never measured up. God's not measuring. He's not keeping score. I want to replace an old view of God with this new view of God that says our God is both patient and kind. That our God is not easily angered. That he keeps no record of wrong. None. That our God will always protect us. That he always perseveres in a relationship of trust between us. He never gives up on the relationship. He never stops investing in trust in you and I. That he always perseveres in the relationship. That he always has hope for you. Scripture says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you a good hope and a good future. God has hope for you. I don't care how deep your pit is. I don't care how covered in mud you might feel today. I don't care if you feel like 10 pounds of sin in a 5-pound bag. God has hope for you today. Because he sees the end of your journey. He doesn't judge you by this chapter in your book. He knows what the end is like. He has hope for you. He has hope for me. He will always persevere in the relationship he has with you, no matter what. Always means always. And our God, he never fails. He never, ever fails. Remember Calvary. Maybe that's who you feel like you're at today. Maybe you feel like you've been nailed to the cross and all your friends have abandoned you and you've been whipped and beaten and falsely accused. What can be that moment where we feel most defeated is that moment where his love is most extravagant and most lavish for us. I tell you this morning, this is good news. Your story is not over. This love never fails. God will never fail you. Let's pray. Father, I pray today in Jesus' name that you'd paint a new picture. Lord, would you, we got a picture in our mind of what you look like. Would you come and would you just whitewash over that picture? Just cover it over with your perfect love and your purity. And would you paint a new picture for us in our hearts, in our mind's eye? One that describes you. It's 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. Lord, that we would no longer measure ourselves against an impossible standard, but that we would see these words as a description of your great and lavish love for us. Lord, I pray this morning that we would know the truth of who you are and of your great love for us and that that truth would completely set us free. And then in that place of truth, filled with the truth of your amazing love for us, that out of that bottomless well that we could draw upon it and, and use that to love one another and love those around us. Oh God, we can't do this. This is not a man thing. This is not something we could accomplish. This is something that only you could do. And we invite you to come and do it in us, in our families, in our church, in Charlottetown and on this island. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.